Welcome to our fourth episode of the IEI on Industry podcast. Today, we're going to take a look at technology strategy from the perspective of outsourced operating partners for private equity. As we'll soon learn, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted PE firms in two primary ways. First, it accelerated the push for technological modernization of basic corporate infrastructure. Second, and perhaps most notable, the pandemic has produced some serious innovation from a group that is more often than not known for being tech laggards. Was COVID the catalyst needed to accelerate PE's emphasis on tech-enabled value creation? We've asked Alan Williamson and Jim Healy from the McLaurin Group to make sense of the tech challenges that exist for PE. They talk about how to view the CTO and CIO roles within a PE-owned enterprise, along with the common pitfalls managers can avoid when developing a technology strategy, both pre-deal and post-deal. Between them both, they have over 40 years experience working in CTO and CIO capacities. At McLaurin Group, they work with a roster of PE clientele in an outsourced operating partner capacity focused on technology strategy. We're excited to have Alan and Jim join us today. Jim and Alan, thanks for coming to today's podcast. How are you guys doing? Just dandy. Doing good. The sun is shining here in Virginia. Is the sun shining through a window or are you working from, from outside today? Oh no, I, I can I can only see the world from the outside, and the world the world prefers it that way. Actually, that's <laughs> the question. Well, I'm excited you're both on today, and, and and the reason is we're talking about technology, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by saying that I think businesses and people generally view technology a bit differently now than they even did several months ago, and before we get into what it is you guys specifically do. Uh, I'd love to talk about the changes that you've seen in the marketplace, particularly in the enterprise uh, marketplace for technology and technological solutions over the past several months in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Jim, you wanna go first? Yeah, so so I, I can, I'll describe, we'll start with some industry background, industry trend, we're seeing Portfolio companies and private equity firms that kind of fall into two groups right now as as COVID has reared its ugly head. And that's those who are digging in and those who are saying, you know, this is the opportunity we we need to move everything forward, whether it's, you know, the the architecture, the technology, building out a truly cloud native solution, whatever that case may be, they it's some have seen it as the opportunity, while while others can't afford to. Right? That's just overnight the business shut down, and uh, it's it's there's just terrible dichotomy right now that that persists. And you have to be aware and and recognize each of those perspectives because these people come from totally different places. But in the end, everybody is really starting to assess what is the state of my technology because if we're supposed to be working from home, but my IT guys having to go into the building every day to keep this thing afloat, then are you really a modern architecture? Do you have, are there opportunities for you to, to start thinking about, okay, if I'm truly gonna 
need to work remote for an indefinite period of time? Do I need uh, an infrastructure that forces me to be on site every single day? I think that most of our members here at IE would say that technology is generally a means to an end. Uh, although I do think that there is this growing perception that uh, having a certain requisite level of technological infrastructure is now just table stakes to running a modern day company. Have you seen a change in the conversation as well? How are companies viewing technology now uh, as opposed to before where they may have considered things a nice to have rather than an imperative? Well, I think that the obvious uh, candidate there is, of course, video calls. I, I mean, people seem to have got over their uh, nervousness and self-consciousness about hopping onto a video call for 10 minutes or five minutes here and there. And as, as Jim noted, COVID has, has placed more burden on the fundamental housekeeping technology, things like, do I actually have a camera in my laptop? Do I have what I need to be able to work from home? How much did I need to be tied to the office? Did we have enough open VPN or sort of VPN licenses to get back to the office? Or can everything be driven through a browser? Uh, and we've definitely seen uh, a lot of our portfolio companies and what have you really sort of dig in and try and figure out, you know what, we weren't as well geared up for this working from home as we thought we were. Uh, the office bandwidth just isn't really coping. And now we've got to figure out, do we really need everybody coming through? Because one of the harsh realities is, for some bizarre reason, Verizon, Comcast, etc., they seem to charge businesses way more for bandwidth, for a lot less. And most people go home and they're sitting there with their one gig Vios line sitting at Verizon thinking, well, I can stream fine. And now the, the office network is, is, is the throttle. So from that perspective, uh, it is just sort of magnified and highlighted just how well geared up some of these companies are. And again, as, as we sort of flip that over, we still have some clients that operate their data center out of their own office block. Okay. And that by and large was fine when most of the office employees were in the office and the traffic was internal. But now that everybody's competing for that external line going back and forth, customers are now starting to get a little bit uh, tedious with, with the response time and what have you. So again, we're seeing a lot of movement towards, okay, we really need to accelerate this, this move to the cloud and get ourselves out of this office reliance game. Uh, in such a way that uh, we don't have to worry about our office going down or our people in our office. As long as somebody's got a network connection, no matter where they are on the planet, then this company should be able to move forward. Well, and I want to go on record as saying, I, for one, want to commend our internet overlords, Verizon, for the wonderful service they provided us, because I'm afraid they're going to start cutting back our bandwidth based on what Alan just said. Great. And, and, and so you're, you're highlighting the general catalyst for technological, I guess, modernization. I wouldn't even call it necessarily innovation at, at this stage. But I'm wondering, how do you typically engage with your customers? Are they actively reaching out to you in some cases? I think like most, uh, like most folks in, in this private equity industry, there's typically a problem that surfaces first before they address. I don't think it's uh, they're a terribly proactive group when it comes to technology. How do you typically go about solving 
problems for customers. So I'll give you a couple of perspectives, right? I'll give you PE perspective and portfolio or privately held company perspective. So from a PE perspective, the, quite a few of them see us as that traditional outsourced uh, operating partner, right? And they'll engage us very early in the process as they evaluate where they're going to be investing. And that can be as early as a CIM, that confidential information memorandum, where they'll come to us and say, what are the questions we need to be asking right now before we consider an LOI or letter of intent? And, and it's not necessarily a due diligence at that point. It's just here are the thoughts based on the industry and the technologies we can see in play. And then once that letter of intent is, is issued, then we'll, uh, we'll step in and do the on-site due diligence. So now on-site due diligence is, is multi-day, sitting down with technologists. It's not an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of check marks beside it, right? It's, you got to be from Missouri. You got to show me. And we can't understand how to engage and what needs to be addressed unless we see, we get on the ground and see what's, what's at play. And then, you know, after, after acquisition, they'll reach out to us and say, or, or for an existing portfolio company, listen, we, we know what the limitations are. We have a three to five year turn. These are the things we're going to need to do to be able to scale or tell us what we need to do to be able to scale. And they'll engage us as CTO or CIO as a service. Now, whenever we engage like that, it's not to be in the door for the next five to 10 years. So nobody wins in that scenario. And coming in and saying, here's the technology that you have. Here's a roadmap going forward. Um, and, and, you know, one, two, three years, where are you going to be? Um, and at the same time, we're evaluating the resources, say, because as a, when you come in as a CTO, as a service or CIO, as a service, the end objective is to make sure that they can be self-sufficient. They need a CTO or CIO, and you're there to fill the gap. But we also help identify what they need in that person. Do they need a player coach because the resources are green as grass or they have no underlying infrastructure or do they have really strong resources and they've been working through this for years and now they're at a point where they need somebody very strategic, less tactical. And we'll actually help recruit for those, those roles to put ourselves out of that, that role. And then if you look at it from the portfolio company, and this was kind of a surprise to us when we started the company, there are a lot of privately held companies that have reached out to us just to say, hey, you know, we're, we're considering private equity investment. We want to know what they're going to see when they come in and do that due diligence. And it's kind of like a pre-sale home inspection, right? You know, you've got to, you've got to work on your crawl space. It's a freaking disaster. So we'll go in there and we'll, we'll help them understand what those issues are. Or if they already know, they'll reach out to us to say, we need your help addressing our shortcomings. And again, we'll, we'll engage a CTO or CIO as a service and help them build out or start addressing those things before they engage private equity. And uh, it it's kind of reminds me of a t-shirt my dad gave me a few years back. If a man says he'll fix it, he will. There's no need to remind him every six months. Technology is the same way, right? You got more stuff than you're ever going to get done. The question is, do you know what the problems are? Are you tackling the right ones? And do you have a map forward? Because in the end, a private equity firm is evaluating leadership and technology leadership and executive leadership, and they have to know they can partner with them. And that's a big part of the equation. And uh, Kelly Powell, our CEO, is, has a book coming out this fall called Courage to Lose Sight of Shore, where she goes into how these founders and privately held organizations can partner with private equity to grow the business. So look out for that on a newsstand 
and bookstore near you. And, and presumably you're operating in a space where um, these GPs and their portfolio companies are either underserved or otherwise ill-equipped to manage these things themselves. And I'm wondering what are the common attributes of these, of these companies and these firms? What gives you a sense that the, you guys need to go in there and, and not necessarily, you know, like cool hand Luke at noon, clean things up, but what are the common attributes that lead you to believe things are not what they, what they ought to be? Well, I think not so much they aren't what they ought to be because we usually find that sort of stuff in due diligence and what have you. Uh, but what a common thread with a lot of the sort of uh, companies in the portfolios, particularly that are coming into the private equity space for the first time, is that there's very little what we would call strategic uh, long-term planning. They're in the trenches fixing, solving, and, and, and servicing clients on a day-to-day -day basis. So effectively, they're always fighting fires. And there's, there's nobody stepping up to sort of have a longer view to see, hey, where are we going? What do we need to do? Do we need to rechange our architecture? Do we need to rechange our thinking? Do we need to reorganize our team? There's nobody coming, sort of stepping back up at a high level view because nine times out of 10, the CEO or the CFO don't have that technical background to be able to have that vision. They know where they're going from a company perspective. They know what they need to do, what markets are going after and all that stuff. But usually it's, it's, not, it's not a CTO per se that's leading that charge. It's usually a senior developer that has evolved with the company, that, that has sort of grown the team around them. They probably don't have any other experience but this one company. They, and, and technologists, right or wrongly, we're somewhat a little bit, uh, we like our egos. We don't like our egos bruised. What? And to that end, we don't like to ask for help. So we generally don't reach out and say, hey guys, what are you doing here? Or, or how do you do this? And because we don't want to make it look like we're doing something wrong. So we will generally internalize that stuff. And sometimes when we go in, you can see the sort of wave of relief washing over people when you sort of say, yeah, your problem is not unique. Don't panic. You've done what you've done. You've done a fantastic job of getting us here. But now let's, let's nudge to the left a wee bit and see if we can ease up some of those problems. So rarely is it that we're going in and seeing, okay, we're going to throw everything out and start again, right? Because PE never likes to hear the, the R word, which is rewrite. Uh, the, the, we, we need to evolve this team. And as Jim says, we're not there for billable hours. We're not there to insert ourselves into the process. We're there to mentor and sort of prime the pump for any re-architecture or reimagining of a platform to help service the client to where they need to go to because our overriding goal is that technology should never get in the way of growth we should be like your electricity that comes in through the wall you never think about will will my power company brown out if i plug in this extra device the only thing you ever think about with electricity is i may want an extra socket on the wall but we never worry about who's powering that socket because that's you know that's a power company's perspective Technology should be the same. Sales, the business, marketing should not see technology as a, 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 
resistance. They shouldn't see it as something to hold them back. It should be something that can accelerate the company and, and service the clients as and when they need to. And sadly, most companies are not set up in that mindset. Uh, but as we've discovered, it doesn't usually take a big amount of effort to sort of get them into the mindset that will allow them to stay two or three steps ahead of the business. And it's, it, it's an excellent point that we never want to go into an organization and appear to be the bobs, right? What is it you say you do here? Because at, at that moment you shut down, it's, it's about getting them to open up and being able to communicate. And then because it's without that, there's never going to be buy-in. You're never going to get to the root. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the things that, that we, we focus on very intentionally. And from a, you know, that from a technology perspective, the same is true from a, from a CIO and, and, analytic perspective, it's, it's quite often, it, you know, the organizations today, they, they see the glamour of data science and AI and, and machine learning and all the fancy buzzwords and so many organizations claim to have that when really all they have is a glorified SQL case statement, right? If this, then da, 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 da. It's, but mo a lot of them are still dealing with the basics of BI, business intelligence, where maybe they have, they've had a, uh, a growth structure that's based on acquisition. And now they're sitting there with seven or eight enterprises that they've cobbled together and never fully integrated. And it takes them two and a half weeks to put together their monthly financials because enterprise data is locked in these unique siloed data stores or applications. And uh, they're, they're struggling to get to the root and, and to fully, to fully leverage what's the, the information that's in front of them. So, it really varies as to anyway, where these where these organizations are in their life cycle from a technology or, or data perspective. When you're going into these firms, I, I, it always sort of struck me as being bizarre or at least antiquated that many of the technology or, or information technology roles rolled up to the CFO of these businesses or to some sort of pure financial decision maker yeah. at the GP. And I'm wondering to what extent does that reflect a, a really antiquated view or the view that technology generally is a cost center rather than a strategic asset? I know. Alan has a statement he likes to make. He, he likens it to the, uh, the CEO who says, why do I need to invest in the uh, technical to pay down my techno technology debt? But every year there's a new BMW sitting in the parking lot. And, uh, and I know, <laughs> Alan, I'll let you share your perspective on that. Yeah. And it's, it's the, the problem with technology is particularly software because it doesn't really exist. People don't see it as aging. <laughs> so if, if it worked last year, then it can work next year and you keep going. And before you know it, you're sitting with a 30 year old system. And, and the reality is that it doesn't age. I mean, if it's still doing what it's supposed to do, then it's doing phenomenally well. Uh, the problem is hardware ages. Things rotate out. Things <clears throat> get to an issue of where, yeah, anything that's got moving parts needs to be replaced. You wouldn't not service the car every year, uh, but we sometimes don't tend to our hardware in the same way. So what we've seen, particularly over the last sort of five years, now that cloud has truly become uh integral and it's not that sort of dirty word of security and and access etc is that there's a trend to get out of the hardware business 
a company should not be managing their own servers, should not be managing their own hard disks, should not be managing their, that side of the fence. Put it in the cloud. Leave that to Amazon, Azure, Google. Those guys are monitoring hard disks all the time. Those guys are monitoring hardware all the time. Get out of that business. Get back into the software business. Get back into the business of servicing your clients. So in many respects, a, a lot of what we do is to remove a lot of the sort of overhead and housekeeping that's associated with running a company. I'll give you a classic example of 10 years ago, the vast majority of companies would be running their own exchange server. There would be a Windows box sitting somewhere, managing mail, coming in and out. Those days, if you've got such a server, people will look at it and say, what the hell are you doing? Why are you still managing this box? With all the security principles or the security issues that are coming with that, the storage, the network, the bandwidth, keeping up with updates. Why? Just so you can get email? Get out of that business now. So same things goes with file servers, things goes with, with you know, your, your databases, et cetera. Get out of the hardware business and get into the business of servicing your data and servicing your clients. So Im implicit in that statement is that it's not worth the time of a, of a partner or a GP or their portfolio companies. And I'm wondering, uh, how do you generally demonstrate the ROI of these initiatives to them? Is it, uh, I think that what makes this challenge additionally difficult is these folks are consistently just constantly being bombarded with pitches talking about, you know, the, either the robustness, the durability of these platforms, what actually helps drive the decision-making for either migrating to the cloud or, implementing a solution uh, generally for, the, for these GPs. How do you demonstrate the ROI in a quantitative way that's relatable to these folks? It's, it's difficult, and I'll, I'll let Jim uh, come in behind me here, but ultimately, you sometimes have to look at the cost of not doing it. So, you know, there, there are plenty of examples now of where companies have suffered a major security breach. And uh, you, you've been in the conversations of where, you know, the operating partner will say, okay, I, I would have paid double that amount of money not to have been on that trade press on the front pages that, that we were the ones that let out that data breach, for example, all because they were running outdated software, all because the price of, of, uh, of, of keeping security up uh, was, was something that kept being pushed down the, the priority list. And so from the ROI perspective, uh, most of the time when, when people are doing an analysis of doing it ourselves versus bringing in a service and what have you, they're not truly capturing the full cost of it. They're not capturing the cost of you know, the human power to keep this thing up and running, the amount of effort, the amount of distraction that this thing creates to do that. And to that end, uh, it, it, most of the time the ROI is, is mostly showing a, a reduced in operating costs from this perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that, that uh, AWS, you know, that, that cloud infrastructure is an excellent perspective, right? Because it, it, if we look at firms we've helped in the last year or so, that you, you'll see it depends on where they are on the 
on the uh, cloud spectrum. Um, at, at one end, they're, they're, they, they find they're dedicating so many resources and so much energy to maintaining the, a data center on-prem that it limits them for everything else. They're, all of their technology hires, all of their technology spend is, is life support for what they've already invested in. And there, it, it becomes more and more of a challenge with every passing year to support that as this stuff ages out. And they find that they can't dedicate the resources to, to scaling this thing up or moving it forward. So that's, that's a real cost to, as your product development team says, here's what I want to do and say, well, I, my technology resources are dealing with the freaking server right now. That, that's not going to that's not going to buy you anything. And then there are those who, who say, okay, we know we need to deal with this, but don't necessarily have the expertise to, to truly embrace a cloud native solution. And they'll find themselves staring down a bill that's bigger than the one they had when they were maintaining their data center. And Jeff Bezos is writing them a Christmas card handwritten every year because of the monthly invoice they're paying. Right. And, and so, it can be cost effective if it's leveraged properly. And that's where it, it becomes, that's real time, right? You can see, all right, you're paying 20,000 a month right now for your AWS. You should be somewhere closer to two to $5,000. And yeah, you have no elasticity built into what you've designed. And it, it, you've essentially stood up your data center in the cloud. That Those are very simple things to put ROI on. It's, it's, it's that getting over that hump and getting past the, well, it works now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've seen it many times. You know, people say, oh, the cloud is too expensive. And you say, yes, it is. The way you're using it, it definitely is. And as an Amazon shareholder, I thank you. <laughs> as a technologist, I'm dying inside. Uh, because you've tracked the data set, you've tracked Amazon like a data center or pick your cloud provider of choice. Uh, and of course, they will, they will happily take your money. Uh, so, when, we, when we've sort of done an analysis, et cetera, it's not uncommon for us to, you know, to whack 60, 70% off their AWS bill without too much effort at all. And when you're doing this type of work, what is the actual time it takes to clean things up? I would imagine it varies depending on what, what you're getting into, but I think what makes the conversation generally unappealing for for either you know GPs or their portfolio companies, is everyone refers to uh, the digital transformation as being some sort of journey, and no one really likes journeys. And I'm wondering how do you prime them uh, for really a, a, either a quick win or how are you able to sort of demonstrate progress in short order so that they feel like they're not, uh, you know, they're they're not embarking on a long, painful journey. I would say the easiest thing there is that the vast majority of instances uh, that we deal with, it's rare that we see something completely unique. So to that end, we've always got a, a, a wonderful rich array of <clears throat> case studies and referrals and references that we can point people to to say, here, this is a common pattern to which you're, you're going through. You're not going to need us for the full journey. We're just going to be there to nudge you and help you and mentor you along the way. So it's not like you engage the McLaurin group and suddenly we send a team of uh, cloud engineers to be sitting on site five days a week uh, doing everything work for you. No, we're there to train you how to fish. We don't want to, be, we don't want to fish for you. We want your guys and your team 
to be up and running in such a way that you can handle this yourself. And, and Alan mentioned earlier, the equity firms don't want to hear the dreaded R word. Um, and it's not, it's not that rewrite in itself is a bad word. It's perceived as being, you know, a five-year, three to five-year project that you never get to the end of, right? And we, we come in it with the perspective that you don't have that much time. You need the value up front. And that's our focus and our objective is to make sure that, you know, whatever that investment strategy is when a, when a private equity firm has, has engaged us, whatever that, that strategy is, um, and if it's three years out or if it's a five-year turn, we need to make sure that we've plowed the road, we've, we've moved, the, moved the ball down the road to show value and to show increased scale or whatever the case may be. So the next equity firm comes along, they can see the growth, they'll pay the premium for what they've done, but they also have the roadmap to show, yes, and there's still path forward, there's still fruit hanging on this tree for you. And for the things that are, I wanna talk about the CTO role for a second. And when you're engaging with a company that has no really deep or technology strategy generally. I'm, I'm not really even talking about cloud computing here. I'm talking about for a company that would like to incorporate technology as a value-added service offering. To what extent does your background or to what extent is your background knowledge of that industry required or not? How do you account for any distance, say, in, you know, if, if you engage with a, a pulp or a paper mill, uh, do you need to have knowledge of that deep knowledge of that operation in order to be impactful or a business services group that has a large, large field service offering? Uh, to what extent does either having or not having background knowledge influence the strategic advice you may give to a, to a GP or its portfolio company? Yeah. So the, as Alan had mentioned earlier, there's a very common set of tools in the toolbox. Generally, we're not seeing a whole lot of new and unique, no matter what the industry, because right now, if you, if you look across the organizations we've supported, there's, there's financial services, there's um, the, uh, the healthcare, there's governmental services, um, and it, it's, we run across every industry, but the challenges remain the same, right? I, I have, I've got a buddy who, who's a logger, and right now we have a damn lumber shortage. You go to Home Depot, you can't buy a piece of salt-treated lumber, yet the mills aren't buying. You know, I don't have to know that to, to affect what are the technologies that in, are in play that, will affect, that, that can move this company forward that can reduce the reliance on, on hardware on their site or enable them to, to manage the, uh, the customer relationship, whatever the case may be. I, we will go in and we will, we will dive in deep and we'll be in shop to understand. But walking into it, there's, it's rare that you'll ever find a situation where the technologies that are at play there are unique you know, entirely unique to them. Now, across industries, you've got, you've got different guidances, right? In healthcare, you got to be worried about HIPAA and, and data security for those, those medical records. And, and, you know, those types of things, you, you need to have some, uh, 
you need to be facile and understanding what's at play from a regulatory perspective. And, but, but from a technology and analytics perspective, they're all trying to crack the same nut. Where do you see the biggest opportunity coming over the next six months? If do you, do you see that uh, the industry sort of loses momentum if there's a back to work, uh, if, if, if people start going back into the office or do you see the remotification of work uh, continuing unabated? What trends are we likely to see over the next six months that can help people do their jobs a bit better? Yeah, the light switch has been flipped. Everybody has seen the ugliness of their babies. And uh, so <laughs> with that, I'll turn it over to our ugly baby, Alan. Yes, thank you for that, Dad. Uh, uh, well, to Jim's point, yes, we, we have turned on the light. It's not going back. Remote working does work. Uh, the cost savings are associated with uh, making things more virtual, not having people in the office. I think office spaces will now become... Uh, meeting spaces where we'll congregate maybe once or twice a week or maybe once a month, etc. To, to truly, because we still like getting in front of a whiteboard with people and, and pointing stuff, but by and large, we can get most of our work done uh, remote. And as I said at the, at the top of the podcast, we've now got over our, 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 our shyness with respect to video conferencing. So I think business travel will also reduce dramatically as well. And again, as we, we look to do that, the reliance on technology gets even more. <clears throat> so we've noticed a huge trend in, in terms of uh, making sure things are more secure. Uh, so there used to be a thing, well, let's just make sure people are in the office and only people that are inside the office network can now reach our enterprise. Well, that's now been widened out to say, no, well, let's make sure everybody can, can monitor this system from remote. Uh, let's make sure that uh, we've got all the data where we need it to be. And as we, as, as we sort of work through that, I cannot see that genie going back in the bottle again, ever. I think this was the seismic shift that was probably needed to get everybody now in a place of where remote working is a, is a reality. And, and, and remember back 20 years ago, particularly, like I grew up in the, the backwaters of Scotland of where internet was promised to, to bring civilization to us in the backwater. We didn't have to go to the city to discover new wonderful things, etc. I think this will be a huge uh, boom to sort of rural areas and, and, and start having people live where they want to live as opposed to living where they've got to work. I think it, it shines another light, right? If, if an organization is struggling with an internal remote workforce, how are they dealing with offshore resources, right? Because in the end, the, if, if an organization is engaging with offshore resources, they have to apply a great deal of rigor to that relationship to make that work remotely. And it's, it's no different than, than what the rest of the organization, the rest of the business is facing right now. And quite often we'll find that, you know, they'll, an organization will push, push technology requirements offshore and, and hope that comes back the way I expected it. it. It never does unless you're engaged the entire time and you're managing that relationship. It's going to be, I think it's going to be much more um, demanding for executives and management to keep the workforce engaged from a remote perspective. A lot of the same, 
a lot of the same skills that technologists have developed in managing offshore resources are now going to have to apply to the larger business. And, and to play devil's advocate for a second, and I know we we got to wrap things up. If this role and technological, I would, I would say, uh, proficiency is such a value-added capability, what is the argument to be made for relying on third parties as opposed to building this capability in-house? It's getting back to what is your core competency? What is your core reason for being in business? Is your core reason to be in business to keep and maintain an exchange server in your cupboard somewhere in the office block? No, it's not. Now, what you need to sort of figure out is that doesn't mean that you now go hell for leather and pick any arbitrary service provider. What we're starting to see now is starting to have uh, single service providers that can that can provide multiple services within that portfolio of their stuff. Because at the end of the day, you want that one point of contact. That's why historically we've had IT managers. We had that one person to go and shout at to figure out why is something not working. And they would then distribute it within their team to what it is. What you don't want to do is get to a situation of, ah, okay, if printer X call service B, if internet and call service C, if, okay, I've got something that falls in between all of this and I've got no number to call. Help. And, and that's what you get. And then you've got the dreaded one where you forget you're paying somebody or you forgot to pay them and they're no longer offering the service. So there's nobody there at the other end of the telephone line. So we now have to get ourselves into much more of a service management uh, discipline to make sure that we actually do have the cover we think we do. Uh, some of the bigger players that are coming back uh, will be able to offer that. So, you know, you, you've got the likes of the Googles, the Microsofts, and, and even the sales forces of the world. Like, you know, sales force is more than a CRM. It, there's a whole suite of, of, of tools there, for example. Uh, but at the, at the fundamental level is, can I have a relationship with my service provider that does as much as I can without me sort of having to do an a la carte menu of different service providers because that comes with its own set of overheads. Well, Jim, Alan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I'm, I'm quite confident that uh, you guys are in the right place at the right time and look forward to seeing you guys thrive and be successful. Thank you for joining the podcast.